This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Brad Stone is the editor at Bloomberg News who covers technology and the author of a number of books. The one that just came out, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Really quite fascinating. I, I had previously read his um, his first book on Amazon, The Everything Store. And when that had come out, I think it was 2013, Amazon was still a successful company, but not the dominant juggernaut it's become. And this book really is, you know, the sequel to that, that talks about how from the low point in 2014, when Amazon actually had a a, a pretty substantial negative year in the stock market, down over 20%, all of these new drivers of revenue and growth were just teeing up. And what ends up happening is the company just starts to hit on all cylinders, and that's before the pandemic. And then the pandemic essentially doubles so many different sectors within Amazon. They were a company that was made for a work-from-home lockdown situation, uh, perfectly positioned and took full advantage of it. Uh, Over the course of those years, Amazon became the second largest employer uh, in the country behind Walmart. Uh, Bezos became the wealthiest man in the world. And Amazon just dominates so many areas of our everyday lives from supermarkets and and delivery of just about everything to Amazon web servers to you you just go through everything they do Amazon Prime and Amazon Video and it it's just endless they have changed the fabric of our society and our economy and Stone does a fantastic job telling the story of how that happened I really enjoyed the book and I think you'll really enjoy our conversation so with no further ado my interview with Amazon Unbound author, Brad Stone. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Brad Stone. He is the senior executive editor for technology at Bloomberg News. Previously, he was the Business Week writer covering tech Uh, in Silicon Valley. And before that, he was the tech correspondent for the New York Times and Newsweek. He is the author of four books, including The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon from 2013. His most recent book is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Normally at this point, I would say, Brad Stone, welcome to Bloomberg. But since you work for Bloomberg... Let me just say, welcome to Masters in Business. Thank you, Barry. Great to be here. So I have to start off with the, the simple question, and I know you defined this in the earlier book, Bezos or Bezos? How do you pronounce his name? <laughs> it is Bezos, yes. And I've encountered, uh, and I'm sure he has as well, numerous alternative pronunciations, but indeed it is Bezos. Huh, interesting. So so let's start out a little bit with your background. I mentioned you're the senior executive editor at Bloomberg News. You were a writer at Business Week for 10 years, uh, and before that, the New York Times and, and Newsweek. 
How did you start covering technology? What led you into that space? Yeah, well, Barry, I was way back before the New York Times. I was at a, a once proud magazine known as Newsweek, and um, I was a, a junior reporter, kind of just looking for an avenue, um, something that I could, you know, write about where uh, my my articles would appear in what was a very competitive magazine at at the time for for journalists. And this was the '90s, and the internet was becoming more popular, and I had you know, use the internet and become familiar with it while I was in at college. And I, I just started writing about it. And then they moved me out to uh, Silicon Valley in 1998. Good timing. Just, just in time for the crash. So I, exactly. I read, yeah. I read a bunch of your New York time pieces, um, but they were uh, YouTube and iPads and Google search. How did you ultimately happen onto Amazon as a subject matter? I, I was covering Amazon at the time. Um, it was um, it was a little bit overlooked. If, if we go back to 2006, 2007, you know, the eBay market cap was larger than Amazon's at the time. It's really remarkable to to remember that. And Amazon was thought as maybe having picked the wrong business model for the internet age. You know, Google was a much more high profile and interesting company. It seemed like and. Yeah, I remember doing a couple stories about the introduction of Prime and fulfillment by Amazon and 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 Amazon Web Services. And I mean, I, I basically I, I was I would talk to Bezos um, when when Amazon got into the fight with the book publishers around Kindle pricing. He was he was on the phone quite a bit um, arguing Amazon's case. And I was always fascinated by the company. I was fascinated by Bezos. And then when I went over to Business Week and wrote a couple of stories about Amazon there. It was it was really just sort of opportunistic um, writing my first book. I felt like nobody had really done a great Amazon story, and books had been devoted to the other big tech companies. Of course, I had no idea what kind of juggernaut it was still to become, but it seemed to me that it had been a little bit overlooked. And that book, really, I, I read it on vacation, I think in like 2017 or 2018. It was a good read, and you had fairly decent access to Bezos' Prior to that, how cooperative was he for the 2013 book, The Everything Store? Right. I can't quite remember the timeline, but I went in there to meet with him to pitch the book, and he was very receptive. You know, Amazon has this weird uh, cultural um, ritual where they start every meeting with a do- with by reading a document. So yep. I brought him a document to read and ah, uh, pitching great. the book. And, yeah, and he read it in sort of silence. And then he said, you know, it's too early to write the Amazon book. I did talk to him a couple of times on news things while I was reporting on it, and he allowed me to talk to his parents and friends and employees, but he was pretty distant. It was limited access for the first book. Huh. That, that's really kind of interesting. So tell us a little bit about your research and writing process. The new book, Amazon Unbound, is very much told chronologically. How do you go about putting together this monstrous undertaking. Right. right. Well, let me continue the story. So after after the, la- the last book, The Everything Store comes out in 2013, and Bezos does not like it. Barry, I don't know if you recall this, but he had his wife at the time, Mackenzie, um, and some employees, <laughs> like Andy, including Andy Jassy, the new CEO, they all wrote one-star reviews. Right. And, I thought you know, I so thought Amazon was a wasn't aren't they against um people buying reviews? That I, that violates their policies. I guess yeah, it was well, done on the arm genuinely. so. 
Right. They genuinely <laughs> bought it and read it, I guess. Um, so anyway, there was a chill, and and a couple years went by, and and then I did, and then at some point I realized that you know the, the book took off and had come to be seen as kind of the definitive history of early Amazon. But I, right. I realized that so much had happened, Alexa and the global marketplace sure. and Bezos becoming the wealthiest person in the world, that there was simply more story to tell. And so I went back to Amazon, um, probably a little cheekily, and just told them that I was going to do it. And this time there was no meeting with Bezos, but they did allow they did allow me to talk to more, more than a dozen senior uh, executives, members of the really? senior leadership team, the S, S team. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Be- and Bezos allowed me to talk to friends. And so the access wasn't all that different, but the foundation of the book, of both books really, were the employees who had been there, had participated in key projects, and, and then who had left or were there but were willing to sort of talk you carefully, because obviously Amazon and, and most companies these days, they try to lock up former employees or current employees in non-disclosure agreements. I like to say that Amazon has a lot of surface area, right? More so than a lot of other companies. It does so many things. And there's actually very few people with any kind of a bird's eye view over it. Maybe really just Jeff Bezos. I mean, Andy Chassie and, and Jeff Wilkie, the former uh, head of the, the retail business, you know, certainly, but they're extremely disciplined and careful in what what they say. So it's really just it was almost like aggregating enough interviews, enough conversations that I could start to piece together enough of a picture of this entire company. And then also decide and, and by the way, Barry, not just Amazon, but the Washington Post, Blue Origin, Bezos and Space Company, his Bezos's right. personal fight with the National Enquirer, like lots of different avenues to go down. So it's really almost just a sheer exercise in talking to as many people as I could. And so people went on the record, even fairly inner circle people, without giving you a lot of uh, pushback. Did you find this book was a little more challenging because it's such a moving target compared to the first version, the version that you wrote in 2012? Yes and no. It was easier in that the Everything Store was kind of a calling card. So I could talk, I could reach out to hundreds of people and they instantly knew who I was and what I was up to. Right. And, and, and in some cases I had earned a measure of trust by what they saw as a, as an accurate retelling of the company's early years, but it was Mm -hmm. more difficult in that it was, it posed an enormous organizational and structural challenge. So in the everything store, it was a very linear story. It was a group of, it was one guy in wall street and then a group of people in a garage in Bellevue with an idea to sell books on the internet straight through, you know, through the dot-com boom, almost cratering in the dot-com bust and then a revival. It feels iconic, that that story, in, in a way. And then this story is a sprawl of things happening at the same time. I mean, it's Alexa and the, and the entry into India and Prime Video and the marketplace and the grocery business and the logistics operation and ads and, and all the other stuff I mentioned. So it was an organizational challenge. But in some ways, this story was actually the better story. I mean, when you think about it from a pure value creation point of view, you know, the Everything Store covers the, the creation of about $80 billion in market capitalization. And this, this story covers the creation of $1.6 trillion. So in some ways, you know, this was the more dramatic business story. Sure. Just the numbers are just mind-blowing, and we'll talk about some of the numbers a little later. Any chapters stand out as particularly challenging to write or 
particularly fun to to dive into? I started this book in 2017. So this was before HQ2, before um, the antitrust subcommittee report into the big tech companies, before obviously before the pandemic. But the funnest and the most unexpected story was Bezos' tangle with the National Enquirer and Medium Post about the Saudis and, and the Washington Post. I had never expected. Well, let me step back because you'll appreciate this. Most te- Most companies will draw you know, will build a fence around the private lives of, of their key executives, right? It's seen as maybe a no-go area. And Amazon was fiercely, is fiercely protective of Bezos's privacy. And Bezos is fiercely protective of his family's privacy. And so for this thing to blow up at the end of 2018, as I'm writing the book, you know, in a, in a, an alleged affair, a, a trashy tabloid newspaper, accusations of political interference by the Trump administration, a hall of mirrors of crazy characters and private detectives and, you know, unethical Hollywood characters and perhaps MBS. I mean, it was beyond anything that I had imagined. So in terms of like challenge and, and maybe entertainment value, and, and I just could sort of couldn't believe that this is where not only this is where, you know, something that I had pried open, but this is where Bezos had kind of led the world and led his own story was astonishing to me. Let's talk a little bit about that empire and put some some flesh on the bones in terms of numbers. I like the way you broke the book up into three sections and each section starts with four data points annual revenues, number of employees, the market cap of Amazon and and Bezos's net worth and some of the numbers from just over a decade. They were doing 34 billion in sales in 2010 and then by 2016 it's 136 billion and then by last year it's 233 billion and along the way uh they went from 33,000 employees to 350 so now they have about 650,000 employees. Uh, and Bezos went from a mere $15 billion in net worth. Today he's worth well over, um, in 2020 it was 125. Now he's coming up on $200 billion. Right. And by the way, Barry, employees, it's over a million now. So over just, a million. Yeah, How can through the we... pandemic, they just soared. So, so that was the question I was going to ask is, How much of the 2020 numbers are pandemic-related, and how much of this is just an acceleration of all these trends uh, at Amazon that were in place before last year even, you know, began? I mean, I think it's both. The the pandemic was an accelerant, and that growth might have happened, and and the pandemic just moved everything forward. If, If people are wondering, does it roll back? Does Amazon let people go? I don't think so. I, I think what the pandemic did is it it made people more familiar with um, you know next Amazon's next day delivery um, possibilities, uh, grocery shopping. It increased Amazon's profits, and what what they always do with that is they reinvest it into more Amazon. So it created fulfillment centers closer to major cities, closer to our homes, more trucks on the highway, more vans in our neighborhoods, more data centers. And what that means is, you know, Amazon spent the the pandemic basically capturing more advantages, uh, the advantage, advantages of fulfillment centers closer to our, 
to our homes and faster delivery. And it's not going to unwind that. And it just means that shopping online for food and for everything else is going to be more convenient. And that is probably frightening for offline competitors, supermarkets. The other thing Amazon's doing is creating physical retail stores. So that's still capturing 90% of all of all retail people shopping in actual stores. And Amazon is now stamping out these Amazon Fresh grocery stores. So it had a productive pandemic. You might huh. you might say it was sort of perversely lucky because it had all the advantages going into it, and now it has even more. So we're going to get to some of the acquisitions. We'll talk about Amazon Prime and Whole Foods. But before we do that, early in the book, you talk about sort of the 2010s low point for Amazon, which was October 2014. They had kind of stumbled with the Amazon phone, and a lot of the the big growth engines were just starting to ramp up. I have to ask, who is possibly worse at assessing competitors than Microsoft Steve Ballmer. Is there anybody who is, I mean, if this guy, this guy missed everything from the iPhone to the iPod to, and, and he was dissing Amazon in 2014, like, ah, they don't make a profit. Who, who Nobody's interested in those guys. I, I mean, I, I love your usage of him. What attracted you to using him as the uh, the patsy? And as I think I call him the contrarian indicator. Um, but let me give a little bit of a defense of Steve Ballmer in late 2014. Um, he wasn't alone, right? There were there were investors like David Einhorn who were who were adding Amazon to the to the bubble stock basket. Um, analysts were were mixed at the time. There was a lot of speculation about the underlying profitability of Amazon Web Services, which the company was disguising on its income statement at the time. Right. And yet we have to we have to understand that Amazon is deliberately opaque, and you know, in in a way that it's sort of surprising the SEC, you know, or other regulatory authorities ha- haven't been more aggressive in getting the company to reveal more. But it is, it doesn't want the world to know how profitable a business Amazon Web Services is. Right. And it's not showing profits. It's disguising its profits on its income statement by investing in more data centers, more fulfillment centers, expansion. At that point, the expansion into India begins, and it's spending, you know, a billion dollars a year at that point on Prime Video. So no one has any idea because Bezos is sitting there at the crafts table making new bets. And, you know, Ballmer just happens to be a bit of a loudmouth and, and expressed it at exactly the wrong time, because you can go back and it marks the exact moment when Amazon has to finally reveal AWS's financials and the thing starts to take off. Huh. It, it's interesting that it was such a strategic advantage uh, to not discuss Amazon web servers for so long, uh, and they were able to, to get away with that because of... Um, it wasn't more than ten percent of the revenues. Is that was that the rationale for hiding that? I think that's right. That that they could uh, another business, another CEO is going to want to show that off. It's going to want to impress investors, particularly because if you look at the stock performance in two thousand fourteen, I mean, my recollection is the stock went down, and you know, or at least it was embattled. And, you know, another CEO is going to say, well, it's going to, like, cater to their own ego uh, and to their recruitment needs of their company and to the image and want to release that. But Bezos, across the, the 10 years of, of this of AWS's growth, 
you know, he thinks long term, he thinks competitively, he didn't want to tip off competitors to how good of a business this was, and he kept it hidden. I mean, that takes a little bit of a remarkable act of CEO patience and bravery to do that. But they felt like they had a, a gold mine there and they wanted to mine it for whatever it was worth. Let's see. In 2014, let's see what the stock price looks like. Bear with me one second while I pull this up. 2014. Oh no, this was a this was not a uh, a good year. They were down 22 percent for the full year. And you're right. The bottom. Well, there was a low over the summer in in May, and then there was another low in October. But yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, that that Balmer nailed the bottom. But a lot of people were pretty skeptical in an otherwise pretty decent year for the market. Right. Right. And and when you look back at 2014, it's so remarkable that um, that there was such skepticism because that that is the year that Amazon introduces Alexa. It is the year that they start preparing to to introduce the, the financials of AWS. Um, I think I think that might have been the first year that Amazon Studios originals start to come out. So the first batch of TV shows that weren't all that good, but I think it marked a transformation of Amazon Prime into more of a content service. So, uh, oh, and and then and then the expansion into India really begins in earnest in 2014. And so they're placing a lot of bets there, and to the public markets and to investors, everything looks kind of dire. But it's really the beginning of probably the 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 most impressive wealth creation, maybe even in the history of business. I mean, um, just uh, it's such a, a perhaps, perhaps alongside Apple, you know, the kind of scale that we haven't really seen before. Right. right. So so let's talk about some of the big winners that are driving that growth. Um, Amazon Prime. Uh, this really turned out to be quite a game changer, not only making clients stickier, but really taking Amazon to a whole new level. It really has evolved. So back in 2005, you know, when they conceived it, um, Bezos wanted to kind of take shipping charges off the table. Like he knew Amazon could compete with selection. It could be competitive with prices, but the convenience just wasn't there. It could take many days uh, for people to get their packages. And at the time, Amazon had maybe a dozen fulfillment centers in the U.S. So taking shipping off the table, trying to offset it with uh, what was a $79 a year charge, it it made it made a lot of sense, and then you you wrap people up into the prime ecosystem, um, and, and they they spent more, and then you fast forward five seven years, and Bezos sees that maybe shipping isn't going to be that much of a differentiator anymore in a world where Amazon has hundreds of fulfillment centers around the country, where one day or two day shipping might be possible even without Prime membership. And so he kind of surprises all of his executives by saying, we're going to put free TV shows and movies into this. And now today, I would say that's probably more more important to the Prime to Prime membership, the fact that you get access to Prime Video, Prime Music. I mean, they've got, I think it's Amazon Music, the Kindle Club. People don't even know what it gets you, and maybe that's part of it. There's sort of this hazy, ambiguous <laughs> It's a lot of things. It's a lot of things, and people tend to maximize the value. Want to maximize the value of a, of any club they belong to. So it's a, a sort of neat psychological trick, and 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 the center of of the Amazon um, operating model. And and then related to the expansion of groceries, but as well as coming up with 
um, physical locations near, I think it was 90% of Prime members, was the purchase of Whole Foods, which you discuss in the book. You know, remind me a little bit of the Google YouTube purchase. The increase right. in stock price essentially made the purchase free. T- tell us about the Whole Foods purchase. I, I, so I, I devote a whole chapter to Amazon's adventures slash misadventures in, in groceries. And it's really interesting because this is one area where Bezos wasn't as far-sighted as some of his executives. So he had people advocating for an expansion into grocery delivery as far back as 2007. He wow. thought that this would be an opportunity that would be there for Amazon. Um, and, and executives were writing papers, and I quote some of them in the book. Um, I, I love the one that was called Amazon's Future is Crap, uh, which stood for can't realize a profit and was a lot of basically consumables and grocery store items. And it wasn't until Google introduces Google Express and Instacart kind of comes onto the scene, starts raising torrents of money, that he, he starts moving faster. And the challenge with fresh food is that is that you need a whole different fulfillment network, um, refrigerated and, and rapid deliveries. Mainly, people want to be at their homes when they when they get when they get uh, their deliveries. And, um, and and nothing that Amazon was trying was working very well. There was Prime Now and Amazon Fresh, and so. Whole Foods comes along in 2017. It's a distressed uh, asset. Uh, um, John Mackey is beset uh, on all sides by activist investors clinging to his uh, organic selection in an age of uh, broader selection and prevalent junk food in, in supermarkets. And and Bezos buys it. Now, it's interesting because Amazon's future in groceries isn't necessarily Whole Foods. They're creating these Amazon Fresh supermarkets. But I think they realize or Bezos realized that he was going to need to learn a lot about the grocery businesses if, if Amazon was going to fill its potential there. So let's talk a little bit about some of their products um, that were winners. We'll talk about Kindle, Echo and Alexa, and Fire TV. It's kind of amazing to think a CEO said, I have an idea for a reader, and we're going to build this from scratch. Tell us a little bit about the Genesis of Kindle and and what it meant for Amazon, whose roots were in book selling. Right, right. So we're going back now to to uh, some of the material I cover in the Everything Store, and this is probably about 2004. And Bezos is basically watching Apple vaporize his music business with uh, the iPod and iTunes Store, and he he understands that a digital transformation is coming from media. And that Amazon's brand is still very tightly intertwined with the book business and concludes that if Apple was were to ever move into digital books, that Amazon would be vulnerable. And so he basically tells his leadership team, the S team, that they're going to build an e-reader. Um, at the time, Sony had tried to do it and had, had sort of failed with the Sony reader. And there was all sorts of objections because what does Amazon at the time know about building devices? And right. Bezos says, I know it's hard. We're going to do it. And it's a three-year process. It's actually very similar to the Alexa story, which I tell in, in Amazon Unbound. But he drives the initiative. He sponsors it. He authorizes all sorts of investments. He harangue, He gets his, his um, sales folks to go to New York City and harangue the book publishers into unlocking more of their catalogs for the, for the e-book business. They had been very hesitant because it wasn't a major business for them. Amazon uses its leverage and strength with the publishers to basically get them to digitize their books. 
And then they announced the thing in 2007. And that is the beginning. Um, that is the beginning of Amazon and devices. It, it leads to everything from Alexa to the failed Fire Phone to, to the Fire TVs to all sorts of things we haven't seen yet. And it's a great illustration of Bezos really reinventing his company at every turn and thinking ambitiously and in an unbound way about what Amazon could become. It wasn't just a retailer. It wasn't just a bookseller. It wasn't just an enterprise software company with its cloud business. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't place any limits, it doesn't seem to me, on what, what Amazon can be. And, and that kind of tees up the Echo, which is its own product category. If this was a standalone product from a new startup company that had sold hundreds of millions of units, they would be a really successful company. Tell us, how, how did the Echo come about? Well, it's, it's interesting that you see the Barry. I don't, I don't know if it would be. Um, Amazon probably sells those units at close to cost, right. and and this will get to the origin. You know, it it the brains of Alexa are in Amazon Web Services, right? And and I'm sure it it gets a nice wholesale rate on on that, <laughs> and that's where Bezos started with this. He sent an email to his his colleagues in late 2010. We should build a computer whose brains are in the cloud that's completely controllable by your voice. Because he's thinking at the time, how does he exploit Amazon's advantage in cloud computing? And how does he create some consumer-facing applications? And he's a big science fiction fan, and he's totally engrossed with, with the possibilities uh, and improvements in voice search at the time. And that's, that email spawns Alexa, and very much like the Kindle, he gets in, in, in the weeds, and he sponsors it, and he authorizes the hiring of all sorts of impressive voice scientists, and, and they bring it out into the world and collect data in a very surreptitious and interesting way. Um, and, and now it's so tightly interwoven into the Amazon empire that we don't know if it, if it makes money. I don't think it's been as revolutionary as maybe they, they have hoped. It's certainly not a conversational computer or, a, or really a useful uh, everyday assistant in the way that they hoped. And there's not really a productive app ecosystem as, as there is with the iPhone. So it's interesting. Um, it certainly has helped to change Amazon's image, and they market the thing, and I think it helps their, their image as an innovator. Hmm. Alexa, what's the title of Brad Stone's new book? Sorry, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> I guess Mr. <laughs> Bezos is not too happy with you these days. I didn't hear it. What, what did it Sorry, what did it I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> All right. We're going to I'll gonna have to get, get it to fix it. Uh, did you see in the new book, I, I, uh, I sleuthed out the identity of the voice yes. of Alexa. I was very proud of that. Yes, that was really interesting. It's a, uh, a woman who's a, a voiceover artist in Colorado. Is that right? What's right, her name? Right, right. Nina Raleigh. And, uh, you know, I, I, had, I had recalled that the identity of Siri had been unveiled a couple of years ago. And so I was very curious, OK, whose voice is springing from Alexa? And, and before we move on from the section of, of what's been driving Amazon's growth, I mean, Amazon Web Services is just a monster, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's, it's there's a I think it's a 50 billion dollar run rate um, with, you know, it's a 10 year old division inside Amazon. It's, yeah, and, and it's changed the way companies and universities and governments compute and run their businesses. Um, it's, it's created, you know, massive new business opportunities for Microsoft and IBM and, and Google. 
it is, uh, and, it, and it's showing no signs of slowing down. So when you when you think about um, you know Bezos, who really had the, some of the initial ideas, and, and Andy Jassy's success uh, running it over the past ten years, yes, it's it's been remarkable. Earlier, we were talking about some of the drivers of growth of Amazon. There are two other areas that help drive growth, but not without some problems. And and let's talk about both of them. Uh, the first is the third-party market sort of turning Amazon into a, a quasi-eBay in some ways. Tell us a little bit about what that did, opening Amazon up to basically anyone who wants to sell goods on their site. I would say... In in the first years, it, it was it was it was pretty positive. I mean, um, creating a third party marketplace added selection and added product categories that Amazon wasn't going to touch itself. Um, create minted a lot of success, particularly in the West. And and the key turning point and the story that I'm telling in the book in the chapter devoted to marketplace is when Amazon quite consciously in about 2015 started pursuing the global selling opportunity. Bezos saw companies like Alibaba with AliExpress and a startup called Wish.com basically conducting a form of geographic arbitrage, allowing sellers and manufacturers in China and other, other parts of the world to sell in the West and, and to lower, lower prices and increase selection. And they, they pursued that in a very Amazon-like way, building systems, self-service systems and translation tools, aggregating inventory and lowering the cost of ship. And then suddenly the marketplace tilts in favor of, of overseas sellers, and you have a lot of disgruntled sellers in the West, and an explosion in selection, lower prices, and all kinds of chaos, counterfeits, fraud, exploding hoverboards, um, and, and perhaps a real depreciation in the quality of products that are sold on right. Amazon. Right. That, that's where I wanted to get to is that, I, I, look, my, my first Amazon purchase was when my a college roommate gave me a gift certificate in 98 and I actually hunted down what that first purchase was in in December of 98 um burn rate uh, was the book but I'm I'm kind of surprised at after working so hard to maintain quality and and to guarantee lowest prices and to guarantee a very high level of customer service Suddenly, there's just fakes and stuff that's poorly made and falls apart. You mentioned the hoverboard. Um, A number of houses had burned down, and half of the – you write in the book, half of the houses that burnt down due to hoverboard fires, they were purchased on Amazon. How did the company respond to, to this problem? Well, in terms of the, the hoverboard challenge, I mean, they stopped selling them a little little bit too late, and now they're involved in, in endless litigation. And in terms of the overall problems of fraud and counterfeit and, and fake reviews, they've been a very Amazon and Silicon Valley type way. They've created systems. They've, they've tried to use technology to and artificial intelligence to, to weed out fraud and to increase the level of uh, the quality of of sellers on, on the platform and, and with, with, I think, some mixed results. On a related um, issue to that, I recall sending an email to, to Bezos after, I'm trying to remember which Michael Lewis book it was that had come out. Maybe it was Flash Boys or The Big Short. And, and I was, it had to be after the Kindle because there were all these one-star reviews of a Michael Lewis book because the Kindle release was set by the publisher 
to take place like three months or six months later. It was it was kind right. of, after the book public. It was kind of insane that these Kindle fanboys were one starring reviews. Since then, we've had like a much bigger problem with reviews, fake reviews, purchase reviews. How is Amazon responding to that? My takeaway, I just can no longer rely on reviews. I just assume most of them are nonsense. That's true. And as, a, as an author whose sales are, are taking yeah. place uh, predominantly on Amazon, <laughs> yeah, I can attest that I, I, just, I just saw a, uh, I think it was a two-star review because uh, somebody felt that there were fingerprint smudges on the cover. <laughs> He's like, you got to be kidding me. But That's what is amazing. Amazon doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, they've, they, they've done a couple things. They've prioritized um, actual purchases, the reviews from people. Verified reviewers, purchases. right. Yeah, verified reviews. But they've also, I think, lowered the significance of reviews. And when, when you look, think back a couple of years ago, and this leads into advertising, um, the search engine was this taxonomy of useful products um, that a very uh, secretive Amazon algorithm would order. And, and one of the big variables was the, the, the number and the quality of reviews that a product got. Right. And, of course, that just opened it up to, to third-party sellers gaming the system, buying fake reviews, generating their own and you know, and, and that variable ended up being less useful. And now it's basically the Amazon search results are essentially paved for play. Right. Um, people buy search ads to appear there, and, and reviews are no longer as important. The advertising is a little bit of a fail, also because you know I was searching for a lithium battery the other day. It's number thirty-four fifty, and up pops Duracell, and I click it and buy it. And it's only after it arrives that I realize this isn't the thirty-four fifty. This is the you know, 3,023, why would that show up in a search for a very specific? And and so I've, I've kind of learned, be aware of sponsored results. And really, it, it's best to start your search off of Amazon. I never approached Amazon shopping that way. Now it's look for what you want to get. And then if Amazon has it, great. But don't begin your search on Amazon. I wonder... Are they trading off advertising revenues for sales? I tell the story of, of the evolution of the ad business inside Amazon and the decision to move sponsored search results up to the top, uh, sponsored listings to the top of search results was a, a very specific decision made by Bezos. And I, I think he understood how profitable the search business could be inside Amazon and simply wanted the, the cash to go, you know, to make his investments in prime video right. and satellite internet access and the other ambitious plans that he has. They saw that it would lead to a decrease in, in customer satisfaction. Yeah. I, I believe that this might even be seen as a turning point in Amazon's yeah. history. Um, I, he, he judged that the, that the, that the, impact on customer satisfaction would have to be so large as to outweigh the benefit that Amazon would be getting. I call this the gold mine in the backyard, but I yep. do think there are some costs. And I just did a lithium battery search, the one, Barry, that you just described, and it's a mess. How yeah, you no, it's a debacle, absolutely. Yeah, it's all sponsored and private label brands, and I have you know just absolutely no idea here. What, right, if what, you don't know exactly do. what you're looking for, the Amazon search is ve as often as not uh, unhelpful. Let, let's talk about two of the biggest failures, um, and I'm going to use those terms loosely, uh, a, a new one and an old one. 
the latest debacle, HQ2, I mean, how tone deaf was that? That was just such an avoidable, self-inflicted wounds. How did they blow that so badly? So it's interesting. I have a chapter in the book about HQ2. And, right. and one, I think, easy answer is that the political environment kind of drastically changed under them as they as they embarked on this um on this on this search, uh, which lasted much longer than they thought, and it starts with a kind of political earthquake in Seattle, uh, the city council turning hostile, right. uh, Amazon being blamed for all sorts of ills, and Bezos think looking at Elon with the Gigafactory in in Nevada and Foxconn in Wisconsin, and thinking this process is going to underscore who wants us. And in the year plus, as they do this, Amazon hits a trillion dollars in market cap. Bezos becomes the wealthiest person in the world. AOC gets elected. The progressive political movement gathers steam, and ascend, and the tech clash begins. And as they announce, um, you know, New York City and Washington D.C., um, they, you know, they realize that it, it's it's not just going to be an expression of who wants us. It's going to be a verdict about the role that tech companies and even big companies are playing in our communities. And that's a much different discussion than the one they wanted to have. Huh. So, so two two things about that. I'm going to push back a little bit. First, sure. the the tech lash had been ramping up for a good couple of years before HQ2. Uh, remember, 2016, Bernie Sanders almost beat Hillary Clinton to to right. be the nominee. So, issues of wealth inequality and income inequality and and the haves and the have-nots. I mean, that's been an ongoing discussion for at least since the great financial crisis, right. uh, it's certainly accelerated. But but the other thing is, when you look at when they started the search, they were already a giant and wildly successful company. Um, it just seems, and, and, and kudos to Scott Galloway at, at NYU, who basically said, all these things are, are a front, and the areas that are going to win are going to be where the CEO has a home or he wants right. to live. And and yeah. he literally said it'll either be New York or D.C., and lo and behold, it was both. Um, so the question is, why not Why not be smart? Are they just out of touch? At a certain point, do you become so wealthy you're just out of touch? Why not right. say, hey, we're going to come in, and here's what we're going to do for the community, and we're going to build a waterfront park, and we're going to help expand – um, mass transit, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. This looks like it was just sold so poorly. Yeah, and I want to actually agree agree with you that there were there were some quite clear and visible signs that the political climate had shifted. But I think it's a, a function of how reclusive and maybe self absorbed Bezos and other Amazon executives were that they just kind of failed to see it. And yeah. you know the fact that they. You know, they wanted to be wooed by communities, but I think you're making a pretty good point, which is that they actually were going to be the ones that would have to do the wooing. And seeing 230 right. regions prostrate themselves, right. sorry, prostrate themselves in front of Amazon, a big wealthy technology company, was just unseemly. I, I think I you had think it right really the first time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, it's yeah. amazing. And, and then the other failure I have to talk about, which is kind of shocking, is Blue Origins has just been a mess from day one. It was preordained to fail. How how could you say 
we're going to set up a private company to reinvigorate space travel, but we're going to do it on the cheap. It just, it's so opposite of the Amazon approach. What was he thinking? Yeah. Well, this is, um, he sets up Blue Origin in 2000. He is a, a relative pauper uh, by by today's standards in terms of his, his wealth. And there's He's... an old saying in the space business um, that the, the quickest way to become a millionaire is to start off as a billionaire. So I think he went into it <laughs> knowing that um, building rockets is not for the faint of heart. And right. so he, right, he sets out to constrain the investment to keep the headcount small, he's going to privately fund it, and he's going to think long-term, all the sort of Bezos hallmarks. And what happens is Elon Musk comes in and um, literally, you know, starts going quickly, raising money from venture capitalists, um, funding SpaceX with government contracts, and, and Bezos' approach seems, you know, kind of meager and tame in, in response. Then Bezos changes gears, starts selling a billion dollars worth of Amazon stock every year to fund it, and feeds a lot of dysfunction at the company. Right. Yeah, the, the dysfunction was ongoing. There's a data point you mentioned in the book that was mind-blowing. Elon Musk's SpaceX wins a contract for $440 million, but like so many Defense Department and government ton- contracts, there are some uh, price overrides, and he ends up, according to an inspector general, getting paid $7.7 billion dollars went to SpaceX, which which makes every time he well, complains kind of laughable. Yeah, I mean, I, right. I, I think that's more that that first that was the the first installment of a contract, then that then kind of continued to evolve, um, and that Bezos was looking at that going, you know, we should have we should have bid on this. Um, he he was ultimately, I think, jealous, probably a strange position for Jeff Bezos to be in, that, that Musk was getting paid to play, you know, right. to have similar dreams in space. Um, and here the government is funding SpaceX and its ambitions and helping Elon scale the company, and, and Bezos is still shelling out personally for Blue Origin. Huh, amazing. And, and our final discussion on failure, um, they had an internal process of reviewing employees called Stacked Ranking that led to what you described as a, quote, informal cruelty, unquote, that is definitional for the company's corporate culture. Uh, explain what that was about and, and why they ultimately had to change it. Right. And, and different companies have experimented with different versions of this. Bezos, early on, never wanted Amazon to become a country club, uh, a place where employees got comfortable. He, he was particularly worried in the fulfillment center is that if people stuck around for too long, they could be susceptible to organizing efforts from unions. And the review process really encouraged managers to, you know, to, to evaluate and then, and then um, dismiss the lowest performers. And this is a management practice that has wreaked havoc everywhere, Microsoft, the General Electric, et cetera. Right. Um, there were there was one element that led to I, I think these sort of negative evaluations of Amazon Amazon's culture. That was a theme in the Everything Store. It was there was that high profile New York Times article in 2015. And yes, I think after the the Times article, they they reevaluated it. I still get reports periodically that a form of it still exists. And Amazon's so big of a company right now. There are lots of different pockets of of um, employee you know, experiences and, and reviews. 
Um, but I, I think, you know, this is part of the basis of philosophy. He, he wants people to come to Amazon to have the most productive years of their career, to move at breakneck speed, and when they, when they slow down, to move on. He doesn't mind. He doesn't mind that. Even the compensation systems are, are sort of geared towards avoiding people becoming extraordinarily so extraordinarily wealthy that they stop being motivated. And yeah, it is interpreted as a kind of informal cruelty among some people, and it's why um, disgruntled former Amazon employees are not a rare species, huh, to say the least. Let's talk a little bit about some really fascinating things uh, with Bezos including one of my favorite memes circulating Twitter. There's a photo of him in 1998, sort of bookish looking with glasses. And then there's a photo from, I think it was Sun Valley, where he's kind of jacked in a, you know, uh, a vest and, and shirt, strolling confidently towards the viewer. And it was Amazon, <laughs> Amazon Prime. And that was everywhere for a while. Tell us about the transformation of Bezos from a sort of, you know, Wall Street geek into uh, an overlord. <laughs> right. Well, the the physical transformation is the, is only the most obvious part of it, right? The guy has been working out and getting in shape. And in the first book, I, I ascribe that from a former friend to his interest in in, um, in in one day going to space. And so he's trying to stay fit. Now I right. think it's more... I, I suspect it's more, you know, the, the billionaire fixation with longevity and, and, and health. But again, that, that's only part of it. He, his eyes have opened up to a larger world beyond Amazon. And, and that's via his ownership of the Washington Post and participation in, in Washington, D.C. society. Um, you and know, Hollywood. Space company, Hollywood, right, throwing parties. He simply seems to enjoy the the lifestyle the extravagance that comes with his position much more than he ever did and the, and the greatest symbol of this i never thought jeff bezos circa even 2010 would be a yacht guy you know right. someone who's spending time on big boats and now as i report in the book he's building this massive three three mass massive 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 with a with its own support yacht with right. uh, with hell was the uh, right room for hell with a helipad so, and I think part of that's the, the, the influence of Lauren Sanchez, his partner, um, and part of it is simply him enjoying the world stage. That he, is, he is human, and the, the robot, <laughs> the machine that created Amazon, you know, is, is susceptible to, I guess, some of these uh, human impulses. Yeah, so, so you, we, we already talked, uh, Mackenzie Scott, his former wife, gave uh, the Everything Store a one-star review, but, but her and... and Bezos's new girlfriend Sanchez could not possibly be more different. She's very social and outgoing. Mackenzie Scott is a little bit more of an introvert and and a homebody. H- how much of the divorce uh, comes from him wanting to step out a bit, and you know, literally, the wife wanting a quiet night at home. What's the genesis of this? Because there wasn't a whole lot about the divorce um, other than to say it was already sort of happening before Sanchez ever showed up on the scene. I mean, Barry, the, the, this, the easiest answer is that we have no idea, right? right? I mean, who really knows what happens in the private confines of a marriage other than to observe what, what you've just said, which is Mackenzie Scott, 
is fiercely private. I think I think she's done one interview um, around the publication of one of her novels. Um, she she speaks um, very carefully in the in the few medium posts that she's written about her philanthropic contributions, and she didn't seem to enjoy as much going to the award shows or to the the fashion galas um, as as Jeff Bezos did. So yeah, that their 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 interests for public attention were diverging. Um, that's certainly true. And in Lauren Sanchez, Bezos has found someone who's extremely comfortable moving in those circles. Um, and yet, who, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's ever possible to know, um, you know, what, what has really, you know, what really happens in, in a marriage. Huh, to, to say the least. Let's talk a little bit. You mentioned the Washington Post. Uh, Bezos really helped to drive a huge turnaround at the Post. And I was kind of surprised to read that the tagline, democracy dies in darkness, was that really a Bezos line? Well, if you if you remember, Barry, that was a, a line in a speech um, that um, Bob Woodward had given, quoting right. a pre-Watergate-era judge. And then Bezos had heard that, and when he asked uh, Marty Barron, and, and other executives of the Washington Post to go find a slogan for the paper, he suggested that it should be something like democracy dies in darkness. And then they spent about a year and probably, you know, thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars paying branding firms and coming right. up with ideas and firing them. And they basically got back to democracy dies in darkness, which originally they had thought was kind of too dreary uh, and then ended up being perfect uh, for the age of Donald Trump. So, sure. Yes, it was sort of Bezos' inspiration, but a little, a little bit of, well, hard to call, you know, that era luck. But it certainly was for the Post, right? Because yeah. even though Bezos did drive a remarkable turner on there, they certainly did. They were fortunate by the revival of interest and in political news that accompanied the Trump years. So, so it's interesting because as you read the book, it's as much about Amazon, the company, as it is about Bezos like a bio of him, was that the intention or did it just become clear you can't write about one without writing about the other? I think in both books, I, I thought of them as, um, as yes, as both. Um, I, you know, since I'm working with limited access to Bezos, um, they're predominantly about the companies, but just is the main character, right? And you can't, when you peel back the layers of the onion on most major inventions at Amazon and most big strategic moves, you you, find, you get to Jeff Bezos and, and a decision that he made. And it, this book, Amazon Unbound, is about transformation. It's, it's the transformation of this company into this monolith that is dominating all of our lives now and, and our economic reality. And then the accompanying transformation of Bezos, right, into the richest man in the world, into, into this figure on the public stage, the, the evolution of a, of a tech geek into kind of a business superhero. And so, yeah, they're really intertwined. I think, it, I think in some ways they function as biographies for the company and, and for the man. So there's a quote of his in the book, quote, you can invent your way out of any box, unquote, which kind of raises the question, how does he see himself? Is he an inventor? Is he a business founder? Is he a CEO and a leader? What, what is his self-identified role? Yeah. 
That one's easy to answer because he, he keeps insisting, and he did so again in his latest shareholder letter, that he's an inventor. That is how he wants to be seen. And it's funny because I have a, a colleague at, at Bloomberg, and we were talking about that. And she said, you know, this reminds me a little bit of Taylor Swift, who wants to be seen as a songwriter. But the right. world kind of sees her, you know, more as a singer than as a performer. And I think that's true with Bezos, too. He wants to be seen as an inventor, but, you know, by his admirers, he will largely be seen, I think, as an operator and an entrepreneur, a creator of amazing business value, and by his critics – as a monopolist, right? And, and the verdict is still out on this, but as, a, as an aggregator of extraordinarily, extraordinary wealth and, and not yet really as a philanthropist whose contribution back has been commensurate with, uh, with his um, you know, accomplishment. So, right. yes, he wants to be seen as an inventor, and, and that, that might be uh, the, the jury is out on that a little bit. So, so when he looks at all of those accomplishments, what does he see as his lasting legacy? How, how does he want to be remembered? With the caveat that he's still a relatively young man in his, his what, early 50s? Well, let's see. It's probably, it's probably uh, mid, mid to late 50s, right? Yeah, mid 50s right now. Mm-hmm. I think he wants to be seen as an inventor. I think that he wants to be seen. The, the last investor letter is really this interesting and impassioned defense of Amazon as a contributor, as a, as a generator of value. And he goes one by one talking about the, um, the, the, the gross merchandise value generated by third-party sellers, the, the salaries of the third-party workers, how much Amazon shareholders have benefited um, and he's really trying to reframe the debate, I think, around his own wealth and Amazon's own power and to shed a light on how much value Amazon has created. So I think he wants to be seen and he wants Amazon's legacy to be one that has contributed to the economy in positive ways. And, and, and the reason why he's arguing that so vociferously is because uh, a, a, the prevailing sentiment right now, at least, is that you know billionaires are bad, and in some corners of, of society, of course, um, that they represent something untoward in the distribution of, of wealth in our society, the widening income gap, and that big tech companies have come to dominate the economy and, and to snuff out opportunity for smaller businesses. Right. And look, I mean, I try, to, I try to get into that debate in the book. I think that's a little bit of a harsh view. Amazon has made some real positive contributions. And, and Bezos is, I think, only beginning to grapple with the, the, the fact that his legacy right now is very much contested. Um, and he'll have to probably spend the next couple of years, you know, turning, turning that around and making significant contributions and changing people's minds. Yeah, to say, to say the least, I'm trying to remember where uh, which document of theirs where they the, might have been in defense of something that Bernie Sanders um, had said, he points out, we employ over a million people. We're the second biggest job creator in the country, which actually is as good a time as any to talk about what he did with the $15 an hour um, increase. This this was just a brilliant jujitsu in response to I think Bernie Sanders haranguing uh, Bezos, he figured out pretty quickly, hey, this is paying more money is a giant competitive advantage to us. Tell us about how he raised the minimum wage at, at Amazon to $15 an hour. Right. And we should. 
should we should note. I mean, a lot of a lot of these moves by by Amazon, as welcome as they are, are are reactions reactions. And the 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 fight for fifteen dollars an hour is something that starts ten years ago among among big companies and fast food chains, um, employee strikes, lots of pressure, and. Yeah, Amazon is growing by leaps and bounds over the past few years, becoming a more and more prominent employer. The the lens of public scrutiny is on their relationship with their employees. And at a certain point, I think they realize that they're going to have to get ahead of it. And, and they do have the resources to get ahead of it in a way that perhaps some of its competition, um, Walmart and the like, do not. And so they, they, raise, they raise their, their wage. And sorry, the one other thing, Barry, is that as they're hiring more and more people, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in their fulfillment centers, at a time of economic prosperity and tightness in the labor market, I think they realize they need to sweeten the pot for, for workers right. to even just fill those fulfillment centers, particularly during the holidays. And so $15 an hour is a recruiting mechanism. It's a strategic weapon to, to bludgeon uh, their competitors over the head who can't match the rate. And then it's a little bit of a of a defense um, to the for the activists and the politicians like Bernie Sanders who are criticizing Amazon's relationship with their employees. Yeah, he he went away for a little while. Eventually, he started coming back at at Bezos, but for a while, he was pretty satisfied. Let, let's talk about another jujitsu that was so brilliantly played. Um, Lauren Sanchez's brother got access to a variety of texts and then went about selling them to the National Enquirer. He claimed that he had a, uh, a nude selfie, a quote-unquote below-the-belt selfie. That turned out not to be so true, and Bezos just completely upended what looked like being trapped in a box. Tell us a little bit about that uh, incredible uh, escaping act. Yeah, right. This is this is one of those episodes that I couldn't quite believe I was I was going to be writing about. Um, Bezos has tangled with the National Enquirer. You mentioned uh, Lauren Sanchez's brother delivering um, delivering those text messages to the paper. Um, he you know he thought he was uh, trying. Well, the couple was sort of conducting their relationship out in the open, and you know I, for whatever reason he decided that uh, he wanted to try to get ahead of it. Uh, he was also he was also paid quite well uh, by the Enquirer for the information, and um, it's it's almost impossible to believe um, Bezos. Um, well, it's a really complicated saga. Um, I don't know how far you want me to go back, but the the Enquirer was very susceptible to accusations that they had political motives, and Bezos and his representatives had had been floating the possibility that they were doing the work for the Trump administration to embarrass Bezos as an owner of the Washington Post. And in the negotiations, um, the Inquirer essentially was threatening Bezos with the release of all of this these these embarrassing photos, saying you have to stop accusing us of having political motives. It wasn't politically motivated at all; simply a good story. And then Bezos turns around and publishes all those emails um, and suggests that there were political motives and suggests that Saudis were involved. And that, and sympathy swing to his side. It was this brilliant move. If people remember that episode at all, they probably think um, Bezos did the right thing. 
And as I untangled it, I sort of, at least I concluded that there weren't political motivations, so the Saudis weren't involved. They they may have hacked Bezos' phone, we kind of don't know, but it was, it was simply a sort of brilliant PR master, uh, master stroke. And they edited the inquiry, ended up getting fired. Um, you know, and I think we, we, that was my excerpt in, Bloomberg Business Week, and the cover line was Bezos wins again, and of course right. because he did, right? right. And, and this is one where, by all measures, he should have been embarrassed, and he kind of came out on top. The, the New York Post with another memorable headline, Bezos exposes Pecker, um, referring to <laughs> David Pecker was the editor of the um, Inquirer, and had already been you know, under pressure because of the catch-and-kill deals they had done to protect Donald Trump um, and, and were some of, I don't remember what the problem was. I guess that's a violation of campaign finance laws. And he was uh, sort of in limbo with the Southern District. Is that what right. took place there? Yeah, they, they had a non-prosecution agreement with the Southern District of New York that required AMI, the company that operated the National Enquirer, to, to, to be a good citizen, to not break the law, to play by the rules. And so when the Washington Post and, and Gavin DeBecker, Bezos' representative, started insinuating that the Inquirer was doing the work of the Trump administration to embarrass Jeff Bezos, um, you know, that was that was sensitive for, for AMI. Sure. And Pecker wanted wanted the Dylan Howard, the editor of the Inquirer, to kind of settle 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 the matter. Right. That's just an incredible story. And I guess the the lesson is it, if you're in the business of challenging wealthiest people in the world with lots of resources, you probably don't want to do it while you're on double secret probation is probably a bad uh, <laughs> There's a line from The Wire that I love in this in this context. If you come at the king, you better not miss. Right. And uh, they came at the king and, and they missed. Before we get to our favorite questions, I have to ask you some recent news that came out after uh, the book uh, was published. What do you make of this $8.4 billion purchase of MGM? Is is this about Amazon Prime, or is this about uh, Bezos getting to hang with Hollywood royalty? <laughs> well, he, he can hang with Hollywood royalty without MGM. Right. It, it's about intellectual property. It's about mm-hmm. the, the vault of franchises, the deep vault that MGM has, James Bond, the Rocky series, Legally Blonde, et cetera, RoboCop. Um, Amazon is facing the likes of Disney Plus and, and Apple, um, you know, not just Netflix, around Paramount, Peacock Network, and and franchises are, are going to be a big differentiator. Um, in, a, in addition, we talked about the advertising business, and with MGM, Amazon gets this vault of this catalog of, of archival programming. They can funnel all that into Prime Video and into another streaming service, IMDb TV, which is it's free to use. And it's supported by advertising, right. and and this is like this is these are table stakes now in the new streaming wars. Being able to mint franchises and have very deep catalogs and libraries of, of archival programming. Huh, really interesting. All right, for our last regular question, I'm just going to throw a curveball at you sure. and say congratulations on winning the Amazon Whole Foods sweepstakes. <laughs> okay, I love the story. Yeah, thank you, Barry. Um, I'll just ten thousand dollars, right? Is that correct? Yes. 
I, I'm working on this book, and I got a call telling me that I won a, sweet, a Whole Foods sweepstakes, and I had never entered any. But apparently, <laughs> if you use your Amazon credit card at a Whole Foods, you got entered in. And what are the chances I won? And I thought it was a fraud. Right. So it I sounds called. like a telemarketing scam. Totally. And I and I, I think, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna look into this because somebody's abusing, you know, the Amazon name and I find out that it's real. And of course I didn't I didn't accept it, but um it it was just so peculiar. I mean what what are the what are the chances? I, I could be eating, you know, free at Whole Foods now, but sadly my journalistic obligations pre- prevented me from accepting it. Huh. That that's pretty hilarious. All right, let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. And let's start with, and I ask this to everybody, not just to you, what are you streaming these days? Give us your favorite Netflix and Amazon Prime shows. Interesting. Let's see. Um, We just started Halston. This is the Ewan McGregor fashion thing on Netflix. We're only one episode in. I'll reserve judgment on that. Um, The Michael Douglas series Kaminsky also method. on Netflix. Kaminsky Method. So they just did season three. I've loved that show. The I, I opening the of the first episode at the funeral is just yes. utterly hilarious. <laughs> um, so and good. That, I haven't been watching a lot of TV, so those are the two right now. Right. Um, I tried, I have, I have young daughters, um, teenage daughters. I tried to introduce one to a classic film, Rain Man, over the weekend. <laughs> The the great Dustin Hoffman film, yep. and and she wanted Tom to stop Cruise. watching halfway halfway through. Um, so I don't know, maybe maybe um, you know it's not uh, it's not as moving for for the younger generation. My my experience is that the younger generation can't enjoy the pacing, which is so much slower. I mean, unless you go to something like the front page or bringing a baby, the the pacing of movies from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s are just so much slower than, you know, how how rapid the jokes come and how fast the explosions come today. It, it, it's a different era, and, and they don't have the tolerance for that. I think that might be true in, in exactly the same way as I rejected uh, the movies of my parents' generation. I'm, I'm now on the receiving end. Yeah, no, it, it's everything is accelerating. Let, let's talk a little bit about your career and mentors who helped guide and shape your career. Well, um, I think probably the most influential was Stephen Levy, um, a technology writer at, at Newsweek magazine. Um, sure. he, he has written great books about Apple and Facebook and Google, and seeing him work and the way he writes was always very inspirational to me. Um George Hackett was uh, an editor of mine at Newsweek magazine. He was he was quite influential and just a great great editor. And then um, at, at Josh Terangle, the former editor of Business Week, mm-hmm. who brought me over from from the New York Times and, and the way he managed people and his story sensibility, the way he really refreshed Business Week when Bloomberg bought it was uh, was wonderful to watch. Hmm. Uh, what are some of your favorite books and and what are you reading right now? Let's see. Um, I'm reading Cast, um, the 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 wonderful book um, by Isabel Wilkerson, just about um, you know h- how we view racial and income divisions in the in the United States. That's that's been really eye opening. I feel like my reading has been eclipsed by uh, self 
promotion and book promotion over the past sure. few weeks. So I, I feel like I'm really looking forward to this summer when I get to maybe read some of the other excellent books that have that have come out this year. I, I read the novel Clara and the Sun by uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, which um, it, you know who wrote Remains of the Day is just such a wonderful author. And this book is about, um, it's a sort of science fiction future where people can take home home robots. And it is, it is such a moving novel. I actually read it and then immediately reread it. And so that is a, a book I heartily recommend. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who was thinking about a career in either investment, finance, or, or journalism, or both? Right. Well, I would have absolutely no advice on the investment finance uh, side of things, Barry. That that might be more your purview than mine. Um, on, on on journalism, after maybe waving my hands, uh, you know, at them to get them to reconsider, <laughs> uh, if they were really determined, I would um, I would I would encourage young journalists to kind of find their lane, you know, find something that they're passionate about and interested in, and go. Be- go deep on um, and to sort of master the expertise in, and then to just be persistent. This business is all about persistence and being there after everyone else has left and going a little deeper and asking that last question and digging into another box of of files when you feel like you're exhausted and want to drop. And that's, that's the key to this business, right? It's not rocket science. We don't we don't need PhDs to do it, but often it's just sheer curiosity and persistence and absorption and obsession, right? I mean, and it, I, I I have become over the past decade sort of obsessed with understanding how Amazon works and what drives Jeff Bezos, um, you know, and and what's good about it and what's bad about it. And I think you need that kind of absorption uh, and obsession and curiosity to succeed as a journalist today. And our final question. What do you know about the world of journalism today you wish you knew when you were first getting started, gee, 20-plus years ago, 25 years ago? Mm. I mean, it's just just such a different environment. I guess I wish I had known how rapidly things would change. You know, I spent the first 10 years of my career, as I, as I said earlier in the conversation at Newsweek magazine, and... Newsweek does exist, and magazines, of course, exist, but that kind of media organization no longer does. Um, right. There there was a whole class of journalists who, who labored in the salt mine, so to speak, um, not really reporting and writing, but researching and, and, and performing support functions. Um, and then every week would be a desperate competitive scramble to get your articles in, in the magazine. And I actually think I learned a lot from that, but um, there's no replacement for writing and publishing and repeating and reporting and getting out into the world. And and those are the kinds of skills that are rewarded in today's journalistic environment. And so I think I, I might wish that if I was able to foresee the way in which the media climate would change, that I had been that I would have been a little bit more productive in my earlier years earlier years where it, where like success at a big magazine just being at a big magazine like like newsweek seemed like a career accomplishment on its own but of course you know that world no longer exists
Uh, we have been speaking with Brad Stone. He is the author of Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. Thanks, Brad, for being so generous with your time. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous uh, almost 400 interviews we've done over the past seven years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you uh, get your podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff that helps put these conversations together. Each week, Charlie Vollmer is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.